Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green and your host. So with all that said, I am so excited to have Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, on the show to talk about all things recovery and performance. We cover heart rate variability, resting heart rate, sleep, alcohol, and zone two training, which is all the rage these days, and how the wearable space continues to evolve. This is a must listen episode for anyone interested in up-leveling their fitness. So the first thing I do when I wake up before, you know, well, let me say it's actually the second thing. I will brush my teeth and go to the bathroom. And then immediately after that, I will check my recovery score. And for those watching on YouTube, I will just flash it so you can see what I'm talking about. Today was a good day, 72%. Uh, was in the yellow for a while. And in that score, you have these five key quote unquote health monitor metrics, and they are heart rate variability, HRV, resting heart rate, RHR, respiratory rate, blood oxygen, and skin temperature. Uh, to get started, can you just briefly summarize each of these and why they're critical to our health and maybe start at the top with HRV? HRV stands for heart rate variability, which is essentially this lens into your autonomic nervous system. Heart rate variability is literally a measurement of the time between successive beats of the heart. So if your heart's beating at 60 beats per minute, not actually beating every second. It's a little counterintuitive, but it might be beating at say 1.2 seconds and then 0.8 seconds and then 0.7 seconds and then 1.3 seconds. Anyway, this, this variability in time between beats of your heart is actually a good thing because it's a sign that your body is able to adapt to its environment. And your autonomic nervous system is this relationship between sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. So sympathetic is activation, heart rate up, blood pressure up, respiration up. Um, it's what's happening when you're uh, stressed or you're exercising, your mind's activated. When you inhale, that's sympathetic. Parasympathetic is all the opposite. So heart rate down, blood pressure down, respiration down. Uh, it's what's happening when uh, you're more relaxed or you're trying to fall asleep. Um, when you exhale, your heart rate goes down. So for every sympathetic, you want there actually to be a parasympathetic response. And that balance in your body actually increases your heart rate variability. So heart rate variability is this amazingly powerful metric to understand in any given moment the state of your body and how relaxed or activated it may be. We measure heart rate variability while you're sleeping, which creates this control every night and ultimately gives us this lens into how recovered your body is. And so ideally, this is the metric you want to increase over time. Increase or keep the same over time. I mean, uh, for people who have been on Whoop for years, the thing that you may notice is as you get older, your heart rate variability naturally declines with age. And so it's one of those metrics where actually keeping it the same is winning. So if you can keep your heart rate variability the same for a number of years or even increase it, that's essentially fighting your your chronological age or improving your biological age. I love it. Well, I'm fighting that one. I'm still going for the increase. <laughs> Next one is resting heart rate or RHR for short. Your, your resting heart rate, I think this is probably more familiar to your audience, but typically speaking, the lower the better. It's a sign that... Uh, your body is fitter or 
you know, more relaxed. And we don't just look at the absolute number, although that's important. We like to look at metrics relative to your baseline. So someone who has, let's just say, an average resting heart rate of 50 beats per minute, if one morning they wake up and they have a resting heart rate of 65, that's a huge increase off of their baseline. And it's probably a signal that their body's run down, maybe they're getting sick, maybe they were stressed, maybe they didn't get enough sleep, maybe um, they put something in their system like alcohol or some kind of a food that really disrupted their body. And the opposite's true too. Like if you have that baseline of 50 and you woke up with 45 or you know something that'd be 10% or, or more lower, that would be a sign that your body was really rested or really restored and potentially peaking. So that's a lot of how we think about metrics on WHOOP is it's not just the raw number in that of itself, but it's looking at it over, um, over your baseline. And a measure of cardiovascular health. Ideally, you want this one to either stay the same or slowly decline over time. Absolutely. And there, there tends to be a correlation between having a higher heart rate variability and having a lower resting heart rate. And interestingly, there's a bigger difference in men and women's resting heart rates than there is men and women's heart rate variabilities. So typically speaking for all people on WHOOP, just to create a few averages here, if you're about 20 years old and you're a man or a woman on WHOOP, your heart rate variability on average is about 80. And if you're 30 years old, man or woman, your heart rate variability on average is about 60. And if you're 50 years old, your heart rate variability on average is 40. So you can just picture right there just how much it declines with age, right? We just went from you know 80 to, uh, to 40 pretty quickly. And that average holds for both men and women. If you look at resting heart rate on WHOOP, what you see is actually about an eight be uh, beats per minute difference where um, women typically have a resting heart rate that's eight beats higher than men. Interesting. And how does that look by decade, 20s and beyond? I would say on average, you're looking at uh, a, like a 20-year-old probably is in the sort of high 40s. Uh, 30 to 40 year old is in the you know mid 50s and um, and then you know 50 and above you'd probably be at like 60 or higher that makes me feel good but we'll come back to me later uh, and the other thing too I'll point out RHR can be life-saving for someone who's having a cardiovascular event we talk about you know increase and decrease but then if someone's experiencing like a significant decrease where all of a sudden their their RHR is cut in half, there's something really wrong there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the most powerful messages I've gotten on Whoop have been from people who said they got these alerts because their resting heart rate or their heart rate variability was so out of whack that they actually went to go see a doctor and it turned out they were having a heart attack or they were having a stroke or like some, you know, fill in the blank, really sort of profound life threatening event. And it just goes back to how important it is to measure these things. Yes. And everyone's got to understand, you got to understand your baseline. Everyone should do baseline blood work. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll add on this is you can't always feel it. That's the, that's the interesting thing. And, and especially people who are going through a period of chronic stress or illness, Sometimes your your mind gets calibrated to a different feeling 
And so you're actually not even noticing that your body's baseline could be way off. And again, it's it's back to, you know, manage what you measure. Love that. 100%. And in terms of not feeling it, I'll segue to the next one, respiratory rate, which I think is underrated. And, you know, you guys did a great job of sharing this during the peak of COVID. For myself specifically, I didn't know when I had COVID, God, it was years ago, I didn't feel any difference. However, I woke up and respiratory rate went through the roof and then skin temperature and so on. And that was that, that was my tip off to say, you know what, maybe I should do a test. And sure enough, I was positive. But let, let's go to respiratory rate and why it's so, so key. So respiratory rate is a measurement of number of breaths per minute that an individual has. And in our case, we measure it while you're sleeping. So again, we're kind of, we're taking it during a control, right? It's the same circumstances every day when we measure it. And then we're comparing it to your baseline. And interestingly, this metric really doesn't change on a person by person basis. So your respiratory rate is probably somewhere between 12 and 20 breaths per minute. Um, and if you look at that plotted over time for someone who's healthy, it won't change. I mean, it'll go up and down maybe 0.5, but it's, it's really, really uh, flat. And that's what made COVID very interesting on WHOOP because it turned out that people who got COVID had this massive spike in their respiratory rate. And it wasn't, it wasn't subtle. I mean, it wasn't like you needed a, uh, a rocket scientist to figure out something was up. We're talking about people who had a respiratory rate of 14 you know, for six months straight, all of a sudden waking up and seeing they had a respiratory rate of 17 or 18 breaths per minute. And again, it's a little bit of a hard thing to feel because it's something that's happening so passively. I mean, how much are people actively thinking about their breathing rate. And so to be able to see that is is quite a wake-up call. And in the case of COVID and, and a few other illnesses, like COVID's a lower respiratory infection. And so therefore, it makes all the sense in the world that it would trigger a higher respiratory rate. And that one too, I've noticed whenever I have a little bit of a stuffy nose and, I, and I'm a nasal breather for the most part. And if um, I, I'm not breathing through my nose at night and I'm becoming more of a mouth breather, one, I wake up with my mouth like really dry and dehydrated. And two, like I'll notice a little bit of a spike in my respira respiratory rate. But definitely a great one to look at, one to understand your baseline and two to understand if, if illness is, is coming and, are, and then take all the appropriate measures necessary to mitigate that. The next two... Blood oxygen, the first one. Yeah, so blood oxygen is essentially measuring how much oxygen your your red blood cells are, are carrying. And it's a good metric to understand just how well your lungs and your heart and circulatory system are working together. And this tends to be a little bit more binary in nature where it's like over 95% is sort of check, under 95% is uh, problematic. Yeah, this this one doesn't really move for me. Yeah, mo most people will hopefully see this at 99% or 98% every night. But it's interesting, like if you are someone who lives at lower altitude and you go on a ski trip or something, you might, you might see your pulse ox way out of whack, you know, for a night or two. Sometimes people who get sick will see that if you're having um, some kind of a, a respiratory issue or breathing issue, you might also see that. 
So it, it's a good it's a good check in. I mean, there's a reason that during COVID, uh, pulse oximeters really spiked in sales, and it's because people were checking checking that. And then last, skin temperature. Yeah, so skin temperature is a measurement of the outermost surface of your body's temperature, and for the most part, this is a metric that shouldn't change too much. But when uh, when you get sick or your body's fighting something, you'll often see an increase in your skin temperature. So, you know, just to summarize, like heart rate variability and resting heart rate, you're you're looking at um, the raw number, you're looking at deviations and how much higher or lower it is. Something like skin temperature or um, pulse ox, that's almost like more of a, a binary readout. Like, is there, you know, are you be- above or below 95%? Um, or is your skin temperature elevated or not, right? And so it's just a different way of looking at these metrics. And so the two that really stand out where we have probably the most control in terms of lifestyle modifications to make a meaningful impact to some degree, everyone has their baseline or or HRV and RHR. So let's start with HRV. What are some things that people can do to improve, thus increase their HRV? It's a great question. So this is a kind of a catch-all for all things good health, right? We'll start with some of the more obvious ones. Exercising regularly, having some kind of a, you know, a training protocol in your life, that's going to improve your heart rate variability. Um, fitness and heart rate variability are, are highly correlated. Uh, having, uh, you know, good nutrition or having a diet that uh, is appropriate for your body we can come back to that because I think diet is a very personal thing. We've seen that on Whoop. Uh, hydration is probably one of the more underrated things when it comes to heart rate variability. I think people don't um, think enough about their uh, hydration. And we certainly see if someone's dehydrated at all that they will have lower recoveries or issues with their heart rate variability. Alcohol consumption is a bit of a killer for heart rate variability, uh, for recovery in general. Sleep, this is a critical one. We'll spend more time on this maybe, but ha- you know, having a quality sleep protocol and we can come back to wh- what does that look like. Having some kind of relationship uh, to the cold, we've seen increase heart rate variability. So having some kind of a, a routine where it's exposing your body to cold. Breath work is especially critical. So people who tend to be meditators or have some kind of a mindfulness practice often have higher heart rate variabilities. Or if you didn't have a mindfulness practice and you introduced one, that'll often increase your heart rate variability. And then there's things that are uh, a little more subtle and let's call them psychological you know, a gratitude practice, uh, healthy relationships. People on Whoop might notice if they get in a fight with their partner right before bed, they'll wake up with a lower heart rate variability the next day, all things being equal. These are sort of a number of things that, that can improve it. You know, it's interesting for me, I love sports. And if I watch an intense sporting event at night, it kills my HRV. <laughs> and stress is very real. Sometimes I don't even feel it. However, it really affects my HRV. And something I, I want to unpack a bit, you mentioned nutrition and understood it's very personalized. For me, there is a meaningful impact when it comes to timing of my last meal and the amount of food I'm eating. 
and alcohol. So can we spend a moment there? So Whoop has this uh, feature called the Whoop Journal, which is interesting, but it allows people to input when they're doing a different diet. So popular diets may include the paleo diet or, you know, the keto diet or, um, you know, at one point the Atkins diet. Anyway, th there's all sorts of different diets. And what we've seen is that introducing a new diet often tends to have a, a meaningful effect on your body, but it's not necessarily positive or negative. And that's where it gets highly personal. Just to take a pro sports example, I remember we worked with the Cavaliers and then it was the Heat and you had Ray Allen on the paleo diet. And this was like something that he was talking about to all of his uh, his teammates. And so LeBron James, next thing you know, gets on the paleo diet. And you might remember photos of LeBron where he got all skinny. And we were working with Mike Vincius, his trainer. And I remember his recovery data was like totally out of whack when he went on that diet. And so it was just a great example of a... Um, a diet that worked phenomenally well for one athlete actually had very negative results for another. And so it's not, you know, it's not a catch-all. And these are two, you know, otherwise high-performing individuals, right, doing a similar sport and at a high level. The before bed um, aspect is a good one to call out. So typically speaking, if you eat within three hours of bedtime, that will negatively impact your sleep and your recovery data, and as a consequence, your, your heart rate variability. The other aspect is alcohol. Also, typically, drinking within three hours of bed will decrease your recovery. And this is fairly dramatic, where we see it's, it's kind of like, it's like 10 to 15% for every drink. Wow. So all things being equal... Let's say you would have woken up with like a 75% recovery tomorrow, but you had two drinks. You're on average probably now all of a sudden in like the, uh, you know, 45% range. And then once you start over at three drinks or more, we see it's very likely that someone's going to have a red recovery. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, we always say if you don't drink, don't starve. But if you do enjoy having a drink, my wife and I would say, have it at lunch. Yeah, right. There is an aspect to, to wearing Whoop where it's like almost encouraging day drinking because everyone realizes that the later they have a drink, the more it screws up their sleep. We've had fun with that one. Uh, but but it's true. And I, I think back to when I played competitive basketball 25 years ago, you know, wow, I, I wish I had known some of the very detrimental uh, practices I was incorporating into my routine. Uh, <laughs> another one, THC. Yeah, this is one where we're getting more and more data on. I think there's a couple of things in play here. One is how is the THC consumed into your body? And uh, obviously, there's a bunch of different ways that that, that can take place. Typically spe speaking, we see smoking is not good for your body, just to state sort of the obvious. Full stop, full stop. <laughs> yeah, uh, where, you know, that'll increase respiratory rate, it'll often decrease heart rate variability. Now, for people who are, you know, regular users of THC, we can, it also becomes true that if they don't have it, it'll screw up their their sleep and their recovery. So what we typically haven't seen is that is that someone who normally isn't consuming THC 
has it, and then all of a sudden sleeps and recovers much better. But what we have seen is that if you're um, someone who is using it all the time and you're trying to stop using it, that actually can affect your sleep. What about time of day in terms of working out? Morning versus, and I'll take the extreme ends, early morning versus late at night, close to bedtime. This tends to be highly personal, much like the diet conversation. But to make a generalization, I would say that people who exercise early in the morning are more likely to have a higher recovery the next day than people who exercise late at night for the next day. Now, part of that's also just how long it takes for your body to recover from exercise. And I'm assuming that what's good this for HRV is good for RHR in terms of all these lifestyle modifications. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if we're purely looking at resting heart rate, there are things that just inherently increase your resting heart rate. So if you were just trying to have a lower resting heart rate, you would likely drink less caffeine. You'd likely avoid nicotine. You might lean also more into, again, the guided breathing and mindfulness and meditation. But again, those things are, are things that we touched on earlier with HRV. Got it. Something I spend a lot of time on now is zone two training, getting a lot of attention. And there are zones one through five. But zone two, there seems to be consensus around the, the long-term health benefits. Can you talk about why zone two is critical and, and, and how much time we should be spending in, in zone two on a weekly basis? And, and also, you know, as a two-part question, maybe walk us through each of the, the five zones. Yeah. So the interesting thing about zone two training, which is often referred to as aerobic training, is that it's categorized by like a low to moderate level of cardiovascular exertion and power output. And so what's powerful about that, especially if you're trying to improve your fitness level, is that you can do it for a very long time. And so it's it's not the type of workout where, you know, 15 minutes in, you're feeling pretty exhausted or out of shape. It's something that you can really build towards um, for quite some time. And as a consequence, you can produce a lot of energy over time, which in turn burns a lot of calories. So for people trying to lose weight, zone two training is also really effective. Y you know, you asked about heart rate zones. So some people have personalized zones, but just to keep it simple, you can think of zones as just percentages of your max heart rate. So 50 to 60%, 60 to 70%, 70 to 80%, 89%, 90 to 100%, sort of being your, your zones one through five. And, um, and so five being say 90 to hundred percent of your max heart rate. Now, if you're operating in that zone, even just for a few minutes, you're, um, you're really putting an enormous amount of strain on your body. So if you look at the whoop strain score, it actually gives you credit by the amount of time that you spend in each zone. So if you spend, um, more time in higher zones, you get higher strain scores and it's you know somewhat exponential in in nature. So if you're looking for an activity that is going to give you a higher strain score in a shorter shorter amount of time, you want it to be fairly high intensity. And so that's where doing a workout that gets your heart rate really elevated um, even for a shorter period of time is effective. The challenge with that for a lot of people who are sort of your weekend warriors or trying to get back into shape is that they haven't actually 
um, spent that much time exercising and their body is going to be building up some reserves from that workout that the next day they're going to have soreness from. Going back to zone two training, the power in that is you can do it for a longer period of time. You can put a lot of stress on your muscles as a consequence because it's a longer period of time, but you may not feel the same degree of uh, uh, soreness the following day. So these are just some things to think about with with different training protocols. And it, it often goes back to what your goal is. So one of the things I love is the journal. And you can literally log like every activity in the world, even watching sports, which is a which, which you can log that this is this is and pickleball and whatever it might be ice bath i'm curious in terms of exercise what does the data suggest here what's underrated well I'll, I'll i'll tie this back to your goal but let's just say that your goal for a second is to have a high strain in a shorter period of time so you're someone who wants to crush a workout you don't have a lot of time and you want to put a lot of stress on your body. So there's obvious ones like um, sprinting, for example, right? Like that, that, that's going to get things going pretty quickly. Uh, but then there's, you know, uh, sports and activities that are maybe less common that we've seen can also have a really high strain for a short period of time. So those might include wrestling, rowing, Squash, which is a sport that I love to play, um, you get you know into zone four and five really quickly. Uh, so again, the, the the common theme amongst these exercises is that they are working a lot of your body. They're they're you know driving up a really high heart rate in a shorter period of time. Now, on the flip side, let's say your goal is um, zone two, or your goal is to have some kind of a routine that you could do every day. Right, a few of the workouts I just said might not be um, actual uh, workouts or activities that you'd want to do every day. So walking, rucking has gotten very popular, right? Which is essentially walking or, or you know, speed walking with um, you know a heavy weight vest on your on your body. Um, cycling is another good one where it tends to be easier to control your um, your power output. So you can, you know, be coasting, so to speak, at a, at a zone two or zone three level for quite some time. That's a good collection right there. I think the, the last sort of theme I would add is around strength training. And we definitely see that people on WHOOP who have some type of strength training routine uh, will often see an additional sort of HRV benefit or overall fitness benefit. And there's a lot of science behind why it's uh, it's important to build muscle. So I am definitely one of those people who is pressed for time. And the two things I found to have a profound impact, one walking, but walking at speed and at an incline. And so I have a personal rule, less than five flights, take the stairs and like move it and, and going down as well. Like that, that tends to get my heart rate going in the right direction. And then I love resist training, but I don't have time. And so I find myself in zone two or three for most of my workout and resistance training because I don't want to wait between sets. It's like I got a half hour. Let's get in everything, and I'll 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 watch. I'll, I'll get my heart rate up. I'll tr track the workout. My heart rate drops to about a hundred. I say, all right, it's time to go for set number two. I won't let it go beneath a hundred, and so on. I'm always, and I think that's just a great 
you know, way to do to kill two birds with one stone, if you will. Yeah, I think that's right. Pickleball is another one I'll mention. I haven't played a lot of pickleball lately, but that that gets your heart rate going. There is a f- sort of a simple phenomenon which takes you back to being a kid. But if you're playing a sport or an activity where you're hyper focused on the, you know, the game at hand, so to speak, you can actually put a lot more stress on your body than your body's otherwise feeling. The example of of being in a dark room on a on a treadmill or on a bike, that's something where you're you're probably going to be more aware of the pain or suffering that you're experiencing from a workout. Whereas when you're playing a sport like pickleball with three friends, it's really fun and you're chasing a ball around, and so you're actually not as uh, aware of really what you're doing to your body. And many times that can actually be a way to, to get a, you know, a better workout in. The watch out though, and what I just said, is you're not paying as much attention to your body. And those are examples where injuries can go up. So pickleball has a skyrocketing injury rate. You know, other more hardcore things like CrossFit, for example, people get super into CrossFit, really focused on the weights, the community, da, da, da. And then all of a sudden big injuries. So that's the only watch out. Yes. Well said. My take on pickleball is it's become so popular with, call it the the 50 plus set. And you don't have to move a lot, but you have to move quickly. And if you're out of shape and you're not stretched and you're moving quickly, that is a recipe for injury. Yeah. Sleep. Sleep is huge. We all know so much of what we do during the day impacts your sleep and recovery. And, and I love what you guys are doing with sleep. Can you talk a bit about measuring the difference here in terms of you know light and, and REM and what members can do to optimize their sleep? The reason it's important to measure your sleep is really the following. If you ask someone how much sleep did they get last night and they, they don't measure their sleep, they'll say something to the effect of, well, I went to bed at 11 and I woke up at six, so I got seven hours of sleep, pretty good. Now, what that person's not realizing is they spent seven hours in bed. And within the seven hours they spent in bed, they were in periods of awake, light sleep, REM sleep, and slow wave sleep. And awake and light sleep really have very little benefit to your body. Whereas all the magic happens during REM and slow wave. So a lot of your goal in getting sleep is figuring out how you can maximize the amount of time that you're in these restorative periods of sleep, which again is REM and slow wave sleep. So REM sleep is when your mind is essentially repairing. It's um, cognitive repair. It's also when you'll do a lot of your dreaming. So if you're listening to this and you can't really remember your dreams in the morning or you don't think you have dreams, you're probably not getting enough REM sleep. Slow wave sleep is when your body produces about 95% of its human growth hormone. So, you know, people often think they're getting stronger in the gym, but in reality, you're like breaking your muscles down in the gym to then be repaired and get stronger, right? And so 95% of your human growth hormone is produced during this really important period of slow wave sleep. So slow wave sleep is, is enormously, enormously important to your body. It's enormously important to muscle development, injury recovery. So let's go back to the person who spent seven hours in bed. The person who spent seven hours in bed could have gotten 30 minutes of REM and slow wave sleep. They could also have gotten five and a half hours of REM and slow wave sleep. 
these are just kind of two ends of the spectrum of if you look at the percentage of time that someone spent in bed in restorative sleep. And the person who got 30 minutes of restorative sleep unquestionably has a variety of issues in their life. They're probably not happy. They're not performing at a high level, I guarantee you. Um, and they've got some other issues with their lifestyle. The person who got five and a half hours of restorative sleep, I guarantee you, is a much happier person having, uh, you know, so overall a pretty wonderful uh, life. Now, most of us are somewhere between the three and the five and a half. But if you can't tell, my focus here is not just how many hours did you spend in bed, but what was the quality of the sleep that you got? And that's why I think measuring your sleep is so important because first of all, you're going to figure out your baseline and then you're going to figure out a bunch of ways to improve that baseline. And I'm happy to talk about how to improve it. Yeah, let, let's do it. And something I'll just call out here, I love this because I used to, you know, subscribe to the, you know, eight hours is amazing. But what I found personally is sometimes I could get six hours and 45 minutes and that sleep quality be better than eight hours. Totally. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of the excuse that you hear from high performing people or just like people who don't focus that much on their sleep is, well, I don't have the time. But even these people who don't have the time, you're probably spending like at least a quarter of your life trying to sleep. So you really don't want to make that a black box. You want to try to optimize that. Okay. How do you optimize it? So generally speaking, um, sleeping in a, a colder room, darker room, quieter room, and higher air quality room, all of those things will improve your sleep. And it's worth uh, doing a little bit of testing on, in your sleep environment to try to dial those things in. And, and you know, for people who travel a lot who are often in hotel rooms and things like that, I highly recommend um, some kind of a sleep mask. And then even depending on the environment, maybe even earplugs. Because noise and light are hugely disruptive to your sleep. Uh, we talked before about alcohol. That's always going to decrease your, your sleep quality. Hi being hydrated is going to increase your sleep quality. Eating too close to bed, decrease your sleep quality. Uh, and then a, a, another big theme is uh, around uh, screens and devices. So if you're looking at your cell phone right up until the minute you go to bed, if you're watching television in bed, uh, iPads, etc. All of those devices produce blue light, and blue light stimulates your brain and essentially tells your mind you should stay awake. And so that can be very counterproductive to your sleep quality. The way I combat that, because I honestly I'm still kind of optimizing life to be a good CEO versus a perfect human. Um, you know, I am looking at screens like going up to to, to bed, and so uh, I wear blue light blocking glasses. And they're amazing. And uh, they've got a little bit of a red tint. And essentially, it's a get out of jail free card for all the bad screen behavior. And I can't recommend them enough. We did a ton of studies on them and actually found that wearing blue light blocking glasses versus not increases your recovery by about 5% on average, which is a big deal. I do love your glasses. I just started wearing them and I'm still like, I don't wear glasses in real life. So this has been a challenge for me to like, remember to put on the dark glasses before TV, but I see a meaningful impact when I, I wore them last night. It was screen. I was, I was watching TV and it worked. It's one of the easiest lifestyle changes you can make. All you have to do is put these glasses on 30 to 60 minutes before bed and you will sleep better. 
So we started selling them a couple years ago and people love them. What's so cool is you guys have been very transparent around sharing insights around data, your treasure trove of data. I'm curious, maybe it's in your personal experience or or something you can share from the, the larger general pop. What's like the wildest thing you've seen that's had a positive impact on recovery? Well, a good one for me also for my marriage is that I, I, I input sharing my bed versus not. And so it does turn out that when I sleep with my wife versus, you know, one of us is traveling, my recovery is actually higher uh, from sharing my bed or, you know, being with my, my, my wife. And that's kind of an interest. That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one across the population because it's not, that's not necessarily true for everyone. And you may see this with, with some couples and, uh, as they get into a later stage in the, in their lives, but well, they'll actually be sleeping in, in different beds because they find that it, it helps each of them sleep. But that's a, that's an interesting sort of watch out is do you sleep better alone in bed or, or with your partner? And it tends to vary a lot by the individual. The case for monogamy, long standing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you know, related is is pets. Some people sleep better if their pet is in their bed and some people sleep much worse. My quick take is I think it really speaks to our need for for touch. Yeah, I agree. The IRL connection I think's a lesson from the pandemic and the loneliness epidemic. We, we are wired for meaningful IRL connection. Absolutely. And so something else that's awesome is you work with some of the best athletes in the world. Everyone from, you know, two, two personal favorites I'll mention, Patrick Mahomes, who doesn't love Patrick Mahomes right now, and, and Sloan Stevens. They're two best in the world athletes. And, 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 they're sh and, and you're looking at their data during competition. What can we learn? I'll use use those two from Mahomes and Stevens. I think the first thing I've learned from our highest performing athletes on Whoop, and as a consequence, the best athletes in the world is is it relates a little bit to mindset, which is they use Whoop as a tool, and so they're trying to optimize. Okay, what are the different ingredients or recipe? Like, what's the perfect recipe for me to be really well recovered? next day. But at the same time, if they wake up with uh, a red recovery or they're run down, they're not going to let that be the ultimatum. So yes, on the average, is it going to be easier for them to have a great performance with a red recovery or a green recovery? It's going to be the green recovery. But we, you know, we published, for example, Mahomes' data all during last playoffs and, and even in the Super Bowl. And what was powerful was you could see there were games that he was run down for and like he had been injured and yet he was still able to have a great performance. And so, you know, for people who are listening to this podcast and they're saying to themselves, oh gosh, like, you know, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with this data or what if the data says something I don't like. The evolved way to approach that is that this information is designed to be a tool for you. And like any tool, you have to learn how to use it and, and learn how to get the most out of it. And so I think that I think that mindset and attitude is probably the most underrated thing that I've learned from world-class athletes. And it, it actually goes a little bit beyond the data. It's, it's acknowledging, okay, maybe my body isn't in its best state today, but I'm going to find a way through this. Yeah. So you don't wake up in the red and say, well, I'm just going to sit on my couch all day, even though maybe sometimes that's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. I, I mean, 
I'm, I'm speaking a little bit through the lens of like your body is run down and you have to perform. Now, in many cases, when it's a choice, I think WHOOP is giving professional athletes the opportunity to say, actually, rest is what my body needs. And so that's, that's, there is power in that because many hard driving people and many professional athletes, obviously, are hard driving people. They default to when in doubt, let's do more. And that's how you run yourself down or, or overtrain. And so the, the way I look at that, you know, the, the other day, for example, I woke up in the red, but I had to go to the gym. So I went to the gym. I still did resistance training, but I did it under the lens of I'm just not going to push it like I normally would. However, if I wake up in the green and I'm in the 80s or 90s and I go to the gym, I'll say, I'm going to push it. Right. I, I think that's that's the right attitude. The, the other thing I've learned from professional athletes is how they handle um how they handle pressure. We published this thing on Mahomes, which was pretty fascinating, but there was this famous, uh, you're a sports fan, famous Chiefs-Bills AFC championship game. So this probably was two years ago. Uh, and it was this crazy game, like back and forth in the last two minutes that I think the, the, the lead changed like three or four times in the game. And we were able to, to show Mahomes' heart rate throughout all of that because he wears whoop in the game and when you when he was on the sidelines and watching the other team charge down the field his heart rate was actually jacked because he couldn't control the situation but then he gets put in the game with like 15 or 30 seconds left i don't remember exactly but he he at that point has to lead his team down the field to score a touchdown that's the only way through and Amazingly, his heart rate started to drop and dropped to a pretty um, a pretty low level for someone at a high, you know, competing at a very high level, let alone having millions of people watching him. Who's a foot away from a 300-pound man wanting to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think a lot of that comes back to this unbelievable um, mindset that he's personally developed and, and obviously worked on which is around being in control and being able to control the situation and having a strong belief system for what's about to happen. Fascinating. So segueing from the best in class athletes, we'll go to me, a middle-aged athlete. Don't spend too much, too much time on me, but I'm curious looking at my data, any, any takeaways on, on things I should maybe do more of or, or, or less of? I was looking at, because I do want to segue to coach, which is super exciting. And I want to about that, but something I looked at recently in coach, it's like, all right, how do I stack against, you know, met about to turn 49 in my age group. And I was, it was a great boost to my ego that in terms of HRV, I was at the top 10%. That made me feel fantastic. Yeah, that's great. And by the way, it's probably comparing you to other people on Whoop, which is in itself a slightly healthier, fitter population probably than, than all 49 year olds across the world. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, you mentioned the Whoop coach, which I'll call out. So for people who are less familiar with Whoop, we just released this feature where we've now partnered with OpenAI, which essentially creates a an ability for people to just have a conversation with Whoop directly about their data. And so you can ask it all sorts of questions about, hey, how's my data compared to people like me? What was my best fill in the blank? What was my worst fill in the blank? Uh, what are the the insights from my journal? 
you know, what can I do to improve my HRV? What is HRV? So all sorts of questions and you can ask them in very unstructured ways. One of the most popular is what workout should I do today? And then Whoop will tell you, you know, based on your goals, what, what you should do. So it, it's built a very um, intimate relationship with our members. It's awesome. And to me, this is a great use of AI. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's it's not a gimmick. It's, it's really uh, designed to to make the data easier to understand and and more approachable. Actionable insights. You know, there's no there's no use for data if you're, you're not gonna walk away with an actionable insight and you take it to the next level here, it's fantastic. On, on that note, like wh what is next for you guys? What, what are you excited about? Well, we're gonna continue doubling down on this notion of Whoop being your 24 seven health and fitness coach. Uh, you're going to see more and more uh, features uh, as it relates to women's health, which is a category we're very excited about. You're going to see more features as it relates to training plans and programs, uh, depending on someone's goals. And then, you know, as a company, we're now growing around the world, which is exciting. Um, you know, about a year ago, most of our business was in the U.S., and now we're seeing um, about 60% of our business outside of the US, which is uh, you know, a sign that we're growing around the world. Wow, Let, let's spend a moment on women's health research. This is such a huge issue. We've talked about this on the show. We, as in most of America, with re most of the world with regards to, to health research, have not done a good job in looking at women. It, it's, it's mind blowing. Could you talk a bit about why this is a focus and a priority for you guys, which I just absolutely love. It's so needed. Well, f first of all, it's it's worth noting that women's health research has been woefully underfunded. And so if you look at all uh, studies within sport and health over the last, um, well, I think it's from 2014 to 2020, only 6% of the studies focused on women. So that's pretty staggering, right? Like 94% didn't focus on women or include women. And so, you know, when we saw that, um, we felt like, all right, well, this is uh, one, the right thing to do. And then two, just a huge opportunity, like to be able to be a voice around women's research. And so we're doing um, a lot of studies right now as it relates to women's menstrual cycles, pregnancy, postpartum, um, you know, l life stages that are unique to women. And and, you know, many of those insights quickly from the research get turned into features on Whoop. So, for example, we did a study recently where we learned a lot about how a woman's body changes during pregnancy and how her HRV will evolve. It'll decrease, decrease, decrease. And then about seven weeks before she gives birth, it'll increase sharply. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty profound inflection that happens in your data. But if you didn't know that this was supposed to happen, you'd be looking at your data like what's going on. And so we've been able to take like population level data on pregnant women and now have a feature in the app where a woman can see how her body is evolving alongside what is normal or what other pregnant women are experiencing. So that would just be one example of taking a huge data set and then um, being able to bring it to our members. It's awesome. Congratulations. It's it's so critical. Uh, I, I know we're out of time. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to touch on before we go? 
No, this has been great. I mean, I think if people listening to this are interested in the product, they can just check it out at whoop.com. And we even now have a, a free 30-day trial. So you can try the product for 30 days. And if you don't like it, send it back. Everyone should be interested. This is the this is the wearable. Whoop is the wearable. I recommend more than any. And it has been game-changing for me. Uh, I love what you guys are doing. So uh, please go check it out. And, and thank you, Will, for taking the time. Thank you, man. This has been great.